Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here this morning. Hope everyone's having a good weekend so far. Um, well, I know we've been going... Uh, ...this series. Um, but today, we're going to be looking at the topic of emotions. conscious of what I'm feeling. In fact, if my wife or some other friend asks me, how am I doing? How are you feeling? It, all, it usually takes me a long time to answer that because, again, I can be unaware. But not only am I pretty unaware, though, but I also often struggle to have the right language to use in order to describe what it is I am feeling. In fact, I have hanging in my what you're feeling and I use it as a kind of reference to help me now I'm sure for some of you more left brain dominant people like myself you had no idea there were that many words you thought there were three words right like angry sad and happy that's all you need or if you're a guy maybe hungry um, hungry is not an emotion but hangry I think is legit because I've seen it I've experienced it myself just kidding um, for some of us, it's not just not, not only are we unaware, but we also struggle to have the right language to express our emotions. Um, one thing, however, though, that has made this a little bit easier here in the uh, 21st century is this thing called emojis. Now, I don't know how many of you remember this, but before emojis, the best option we had for expressing emotion through email and text was what they used to call emoticons. You guys know what I'm talking about? The, the kind of thing where you create a facial expression using keyboard characters. Um, the, the classic one is the, the colon with the eyes, the dash for the nose, and then you know using parentheses either to make a happy face or a frowny face. Um, but yeah, these, were, these are what we had. Um, and in case you can't figure it out, emoticon comes from blending the words emotional and icon together. And there are claims that the first one ever used were in 19, uh, all the way back in 1979. Um, however, if you do a little bit of research, the first substantiated use came from an American computer scientist, Scott Fallman, in September 19th, 1982. Now the shift from emoticons to emojis began to happen around 1999 when a Japanese artist by the name of Shigataka Kuruta, who uh, was working on a team that was trying to develop an early mobile uh, internet platform on, on a mobile phone. And he wanted to come up with an attractive way to convey information in a simple and succinct way. And so he began to sketch a set of 12 by 12 uh, pixel images that could be selected from a keyboard-like grid. And this idea and this technology really took off. Um, some of you might not remember these, or maybe you didn't have phones that could use them, but here's a picture of what some of these early uh, emojis looked like. In fact, this is a picture of Karuda's original 176 emojis, which are now a permanent, uh, part of a permanent collection at the New York Museum of Modern Art. Now, obviously, as technology has gotten uh, better, emojis have gotten more detailed in advance. In fact, you can even make yourself an emoji, which is pretty weird, right? Especially when your grandma sends you a picture of her emoji with a thumbs up, like, this is weird, grandma. But either way, emojis have definitely impacted the way that we communicate. I mean, actually, uh, this emoji here 
was Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year in 2015. And I've gotten texts from some of you, and I know that this is a particular favorite. And so whether you love emojis and use them all the time, or whether you hate them and get annoyed when people use them too much, either way, they are an attempt to communicate emotions. Now, the topic of emotions can be somewhat complex. And in general, I don't think our culture, or for that matter, even the church, does a great job of understanding them and the role that they should play. And yet when we look at this topic through the lens of scripture, what we find is that the Bible has a lot to say about it. Now we'll definitely look at some Proverbs today, but uh, we'll also look at some other scriptures in order to get a well-rounded view of the topic of emotions. But before we dive in here, let me open us up with a word of prayer. Father, we look to you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's, uh, it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. And we pray, Lord, that that would happen today by, uh, through your word, by the power of your spirit. Would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to know you and to obey you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so our outline for this morning, uh, we'll be looking at and attempting to try to answer these five questions on the topic of wise emotions. Number one, how should we think about emotions? Number two, what are emotions for? Number three, what do godly emotions look like? Number four, what are the benefits of godly emotions and what are the consequences of ungodly ones? And then number five, how do we cultivate godly emotions and how do we handle or how do we control ungodly ones? And so starting with this first question here of how should we think about emotions? Well, I think the first place for you and I to start is for us to acknowledge and to say that emotions are a good gift from God. You see, I think for some of us, and certainly this temptation was stronger in generations past, uh, we have this propensity to devalue or to disregard emotions. We might even view someone who is emotional as weak or silly or something like that. And yet when we open the Bible, and in particular when we read the first couple chapters of Genesis, what we see there is that God created us in his image. Now the reason that that's important and the reason that's relevant is because it helps us understand who we are and how we are created. Uh, Alvin Plantinga, a Christian philosopher, wrote this. He said, how should we think about human persons? What sorts of things are, uh, what, what sorts of things fundamentally are they? What is it to be human? The first point to know is that on the Christian scheme of things, God is the premier person, the first and chief exemplar of personhood. And the properties most important for an understanding of our personhood are the properties that we share with him. And so in light of that, the main, uh, one of the main properties that you and I share with uh, our creator God and most certainly is a part of what it means to be created in his image, is that we have emotions. And therefore, as I said earlier, emotions are a good gift from God. Remember uh, what God said after he created us. He looked at us, looked at humankind, and said it was very good. In fact, Proverbs 3.19 says this, By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge the watery depths were divided and the clouds let drop the dew. 
In other words, what Proverbs is getting at here is that God, out of his infinite wisdom, out of his perfect knowledge, he created and he designed the world. And when it came to human beings, he, out of that wisdom, decided to make us in his image, which again includes us having emotions. Now, with that said, though, we have to also at the same time acknowledge and we have to admit that the fall of man did, in fact, impact our emotions. Professor Sam Williams, in his article, Toward a Theology of Emotion, he wrote this, a biblical view of emotion, while maintaining that the capacity for emotion is good, must account for sin, which has corrupted every part of our being and experience. The fallen human heart is evil, deceptive, and rebellious. Therefore, its products are inevitably tainted with the stain of sin. Sin infects our whole being, and every capacity or faculty has been tilted away from God. Our emotions are no longer naturally oriented in such a way that they contribute to honoring, loving, and obeying God. Instead, our emotions have become self-serving, our affections idolatrous, and our passion is for our own glory rather than God's. You see, what Williams is saying here is that, yes, God made emotions, and he made us with the capacity to express them, and in that sense, they are good and right, and they are a gift from God. But we also have to understand that they have been impacted by sin and the fall. Now, with that said, it's important you understand that the same is true for our other God-given faculties, including our minds and our wills. Again, on this point, Williams writes this. He said, at this point, we must reiterate that all of our primary faculties or capacities, intellect, will, conscience, emotion, are equally involved in imaging God and equally corrupted by sin. You see, the reason that's important is because often our emotions have been pitted against our minds or our intellects with the thought being there that we should ignore our emotions and only care about or trust our mind or reason. And yet what Williams points out here is that our intellect and our mind, it is just as corrupted by sin as are our emotions. You see, because our culture doesn't understand this, it ends up going from one extreme to another. I mean, 50 years ago, it would have been very common to hear people say things like, never trust your emotions. They are unreliable, they are unimportant or something like that. And because that was the mindset, what you got was a lot of people stuffing their emotions or hiding them or ignoring them altogether. Which for most of us, this explains why our grandparents or our parents were the way that they were, right? Like this is why some of them never looked at you and said, I love you or talked about hard things in their lives because again, they were taught either explicitly or they just sort of grew up feeling this, that emotions are unreliable, that we should ignore them or stuff them, that what's important and what we should focus on is what is true, what is logical, right? Like that is the hallmark of modernism. That is what modernism valued. However though, in contrast, now our society has completely gone the other way. We are now in what they call postmodern era, and in this era, we are at the point of disregarding our minds and our intellects, and we view them with suspicion, and we say that there's no place now for logic or reason, and now everything is about emotions, what you feel, right? Like if it feels right, it is right. I mean, we are even at the point where some are starting to buy into what they have called emotional reasoning, 
And this is where someone would conclude that their emotional reaction to something proves it to be true regardless of the evidence proving otherwise, right? Like we see this kind of thing all over the place. In other words, we have now gone from never trusting our emotions to always trusting our emotions. We went from never expressing them to always expressing them without constraint. And yet what the Bible would say to that is that both our mind and our emotions have been negatively impacted by the fall. And therefore, we need to have a more balanced approach to both of them. You see, the good news for us as believers is that because of Jesus, we have been born again. And therefore, as part of that, God has and will continue to redeem not just our bodies, but also our minds, our wills, and our emotions. And so what that means for us is that through Christ, even in this life, we can have and we can exercise redeemed minds, wills, and emotions. Now, it will not be perfect in this life until Christ returns, which is why you and I will continue to struggle with sin. It's why we will not always know everything just perfectly. But even still, we can make progress and we can know truth. In talking about how our mind and our emotions are affected by sin, uh, Van Til, in his famous uh, book, An Introduction to Systematic Theology, he wrote this. It is sometimes argued that unless one asserts the primacy of the intellect, one may justly follow any or every sort of emotion. But this would only be true in the non-Christian concept of the nature of man. Only in the non-Christian concept of man are the emotions inherently unruly. No, they have become unruly only because of sin. But when sin has entered into the mind of man, the intellect is as unruly as are the affections. The whole man refuses to subject itself to the rule of God. When a saved sinner learns to control his passions, the reason is not primarily that he has understood the meaning of the primacy of the intellect as a psychological truth, but the primary reason is that in the whole of his being, he is born of God. You see what Van Til is saying there is that all of our faculties, our mind, our will, our emotions, they have all been affected and corrupted through the fall. But if we are in Christ, and if we have been born again, then we are able now to obey God and to please Him with our minds, with our wills, and with our emotions. And actually, when those are working properly, instead of working against each other, they actually work together creating a kind of checks and balance system within our soul. Theologian John Frame put it this way. He said, it is true, of course, that people sometimes follow their feelings rather than thinking responsibly. But it is also the case that people sometimes follow rationalistic schemes that run contrary to what they know in their guts or their feelings to be true. God gives us multiple faculties to serve as a sort of internal system of checks and balances. Sometimes reason saves us from emotional craziness, but emotions can also check the extravagant pretenses of reason. Sometimes feelings guides my reflection. My reflection refines my feelings. Those refined feelings provoke additional reflection and so on. The goal is a satisfying analysis 
and an analysis I feel good about, one with which I have cognitive rest, a peaceful relationship between intellect and emotion. That relation seems to be involved in all knowledge. You see, I think for most of us, we are bent towards relying on either our minds, our intellect, our reason, or we are bent on relying on our emotions, our affections, our feelings, right? Like even personality tests get at this and point this out. And yet I think because God knows that he designed us to have them in balance, he often, I find, pairs us with a spouse or a close friend who is very different from us. In fact, I think that this is even part of his plan for uh, redeeming those faculties in each of us. I mean, my wife, Faith, uh, her and I fit that stereotype. I'm the thinker, she's the feeler, right? Like yesterday we were riding around in the car and we were listening to a country song about a dog and all of a sudden I look over and she's reaching into the glove box to pull out a tissue and to wipe away tears. And we just both started laughing because it's just so classic. And yet, after being married for 13 years, we have both seen, I think, and have come to value how the other person, how the other person approaches things. I mean, when we first got married, I was utterly convinced as the thinker that my way of seeing the world and my way of making decisions was right. And I'm sure for Faith, she thought that her approach was right. And yet I would say as the years have gone by and as we have both grown and matured, we realize that both are needed and that we balance each other well. I mean, it's kind of funny because right now, Faith and I are doing some premarital counseling with this young couple. And in the case of the couple, the, the, the guy is the feeler and the girl is the thinker. And because they're young and somewhat immature, they are both pretty locked in and convinced that their way of seeing things and understanding things is the best way. And so because of that, there's conflict there and it even comes out during counseling sessions which is interesting and so the girl will make these really strong statements like well I just think this and that is true and that this is reality and then the guy will come back with well I feel that this is true and based on this feeling and this emotion that this is what is reality And yet the truth is, is that sometimes the girl is right and she is seeing things clearly. However, though, sometimes she's very wrong. She will never admit it, but she is not seeing it the right way. And and the same is true for him. And so again, these faculties, they are meant to work together to balance each other out. And so as we grow and mature as believers, we should see this not only in our relationships, but we should also begin to see this within our own selves. And so for me as a thinker, as I have grown and matured, I have come to understand and to value the role that my own emotions play. And for Faith, I I think that she has come to appreciate and to use her mind, her reason, in order to check and to balance her emotions. And so to summarize this first question here, how should we think about emotions? What we've said so far is that we should realize that they are a good gift from God that they are a part of what it means to be created in his image. However, we've also said that we have to be honest and we have to acknowledge that they have been impacted and marred by the fall. But it's not just them. 
so has also our mind and our wills. Therefore, when it comes to emotions, we should avoid extremes, which say never trust your emotions and always trust your emotions. And instead, we should realize that in Christ, all of our faculties are being redeemed. And the best way to live and to know truth is by having our faculties work together in a kind of checks and balance system. Now, I know that was a lot to follow, and I probably lost some of you, but let's go on now to our second question, and that is this. What are emotions for? Well, again, as we've already have said, emotions are a part of God's good design for us, and so what exactly then is their purpose? Well, one of the main purposes of emotions is I think that they communicate to us. And specifically what they do is they report and they reveal what you and I believe and what we value, which is why Jesus in Luke 6, 45, he said, a good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Proverbs 4, 23 says it this way, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. Again, the idea here is that our emotions, they reveal and they report what you and I believe and what we value. That's why Jesus would say elsewhere, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Um, one of the books I read this week, and I would highly recommend it, uh, is a book called True Feelings, God's Gracious and Glorious Purpose for Our Emotions. Uh, it was written by uh, two women, Carolyn Mahaney and her daughter, Nicole Whitaker. But on this point, here's what they wrote. They said, emotions are the reporters for the soul. They tell us about ourselves and our world and how we are processing the events in our lives. They reveal what is going on around us and they shine a light down into the depths of our souls. Emotions tell us who we really are. In other words, our emotions tell us what we value and believe. Emotions arise when something happens to the objects we value. In this way, they reveal and they report and they tell us what we value. Even if we don't know who or what is the object of our emotions, we can be sure that there is one. Value determines emotion. Emotions talk to us. They tell us what we think. They tell us what we believe. So this is how it works. Our beliefs and our values come together to produce our emotions. In other words, our emotions tell us what we think about what we care about. What we believe about what we value triggers our emotions. The strength of our beliefs together with how much we value the object combine to produce an infinite variety of emotions, weak and strong. Emotions tell us what we value and believe and how much. Now, in case you couldn't follow that, or in case you're not buying it, let me give you an example here that will hopefully flush this out. As I've told you before, uh, we have a black cat named Grip. Now, Grip is an outdoor cat, uh, but he sleeps in our garage each night. And so during the day, Grip hangs out and just sort of roams the neighborhood and uh, catches mice in our woods and then leaves the dead mice in our boots in the garage. Uh, true story, that happened. But then at night, we uh, yell out the front door, the back door, and grip, you know, and he comes running, and we put him in the garage for the night and give him dinner. Well, about a year ago, grip disappeared and didn't come home. And so after the first night, we were slightly worried, 
But then after nights two, three, and four, we were very upset and we were just convinced that he was hit by a car or he was stolen or was just lost forever. Now in our family, this was definitely a sad moment and we were all worried for him. Um, In fact, even our neighbors were upset about it and took the time to help us look for him. Well, about four or five days later, one of our neighbors uh, was driving in our neighborhood and spotted Grip running down the road and they uh, got him, which is not easy because he is somewhat wild, and, and brought him home to us. And so we were all very happy and excited to have him back. And so again, in both losing our cat and in finding him, there were emotions involved. Now, as much as I love that cat, which I never thought I would say, uh, I can tell you that the time that we thought we lost one of our twins at a family reunion and couldn't find him for a good 10 minutes, uh, but eventually found him at a neighbor's house trying to steal some other kid's power wheel, um, both the fear and the panic that I felt while searching for him and the joy and the relief and the delight I had at finding him were both very different than how it was with our cat. Right, and that makes sense because I believe that human beings are more valuable than cats And also, because this little human being over here is my kid, I value him more than I value other kids, right? Like, that's just reality. I mean, if you lost your kid, I would help you look. But when it's my kid, it's like, I'm frantic. There's stronger emotions there. You see, again, our emotions, they both reveal and they report to us what we believe and what we value. Let me just give you another trivial example, less extreme. This is why some of you in here, I won't name any names, this is why you have really strong emotions when Ohio State is in the national championship game. And it's also why you don't really care and might not watch it when they're not, right? Because emotions are tied to what we believe and what we value. And so hopefully you can see from that what the purpose of them, uh, what, what the purpose of emotions are and why This is important, why it's important and it's critical that we pay attention to them. And yet, for some of us, I think we are afraid to look at them because we are worried about what they might reveal or what they might tell us. However, though, even if we try to ignore them, emotions are very pesky things. They have a way of leaking out of us even when we don't want them to. Um, A.W. Tozer said it this way. He said, be sure that human feelings can never be completely stifled. If they are forbidden their normal course like a river, they will cut another channel through the life and flow out to curse, ruin, and destroy. You see, what Tozer is saying there is that suppressed feelings do not just disappear. No, instead, they cut new channels and they flow out to wreak havoc in our lives. And so we shouldn't ignore them, we shouldn't suppress them, but instead we should use them in order to know what we believe and what we value and then take those beliefs and values and evaluate whether or not those beliefs and values align with God's word. Again, Mahaney and Whitaker are helpful on this. They write this, because emotions reveal our beliefs and values or lack thereof, they give us vital insight into our hearts. Most important of all, they tell us how we are doing with God. They tell us if we really believe God's word is true and if we really value what God thinks or what God values. Emotions are not the final source of truth, but they do tell the truth about us. 
Instead of asking ourselves, where did this emotion come from and getting no answer, we can ask, what does this emotion tell me about what I believe and value and then trace that emotion back to its source. This will lead to biblical emotional intelligence. When we locate the beliefs and values that fuel our emotions, we can then examine them in light of scripture and consider whether or not they are pleasing to God. So this is what emotions are for. This is the purpose of them. The next question then is, what are those emotions that are pleasing to God? Or in other words, our third question here, what do godly emotions look like? Now, this might surprise you because in general, our culture has said things like there are positive emotions and there are negative emotions and we should only express and focus on the positive ones and we should avoid or repress negative ones. And yet the Bible doesn't make those same distinctions or categories. You see, again, the world would say things like love, happiness, peace. Those are positive emotions, but things like hate, anger, sadness, and jealousy, those are negative emotions. But again, the Bible would say, no, 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 that's not the right way to think about it. It's not whether or not something is positive or negative. It's whether or not something is godly or ungodly. And what we see in the scriptures is that almost any emotion can be godly or ungodly. It just depends on the situation. For example, let's take something like happiness or joy. In general, the Bible would paint a picture that the emotion of joy and happiness is something that is good and right and something that's good for us to feel and to express. However, though, there are times when the Bible would say that it's ungodly for you and I to rejoice and to be happy. Proverbs 24, 17 says, do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Okay, so is joy and happiness a positive or a negative emotion? Again, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong category. Instead, the question is, in this particular situation in my life, what does a godly emotion look like? Well, in the case of Proverbs 24, 17, it would be ungodly for you to be happy or to rejoice when your enemy falls. Another example like this would be love. We might think love is always right and is always good. But again, according to the Bible, it's not that simple. In the great commandment, we're told to love God and to love others. But in 1 John 2, 15, we're told, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So what we see here is that emotions like joy and love, they can either be godly or ungodly, depending on the situation. But the same is also true for things like anger and hate and even jealousy. Proverbs 29, 22 says, an angry person stirs up conflict and a hot-tempered person commits many sins. Now we might look at that and, and think, okay, so anger is always wrong. It's always sinful. And certainly Proverbs in the rest of the Bible warns against anger and talks about how it can and often does lead to sin. But the Bible also tells us that God himself expresses anger. We see Jesus get angry in the gospels. And yet we know that neither God the Father nor Jesus ever committed sin. So in other words, it is possible to be angry in a way that is godly. This is what some have referred to as righteous anger. The same is true for something like jealousy. Proverbs 27, four says, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? 
In Galatians, Paul even lists jealousy as one of the works of the flesh that'll keep you out of the kingdom. And yet, when we look elsewhere, we see that God himself is at times jealous. While giving the Ten Commandments and talking about false gods in Exodus 20, Yahweh says in verse 5, You shall not bow down to them to serve them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. A little bit later on in Exodus 34, uh, the Lord tells Moses this. He says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, not only is it possible for God to be jealous and not sin, it appears in Scripture that we too can be jealous in a righteous or godly way. In fact, I just read about this recently in my quiet time. I was uh, going through the Old Testament. I'm in the book of Numbers. And in Numbers 25, we see an example of this. Um, the context is, is that Israel is still uh, wandering around in the wilderness and in this, they end up being led astray by some Moabite women, and they actually end up worshiping the false gods of uh, the nation of Moab. And so Yahweh is super angry, and therefore he causes a plague to break out uh, on the people of Israel, and many of them start to die. But even in the midst of this, this one guy, this one Israelite man, he takes one of these Moabite women in front of everybody and he goes into a tent almost like, I don't care what you think. I don't really care what is happening. I'm doing this. It's like blatant sin, like blatant idolatry. But as we keep reading, what we see is that Phineas, one of the priests, he gets up, he takes a spear, he goes into that guy's tent and he stabs both the man and the woman through and kills them. And we're told that it's at that point that the plague stops. I know that's kind of a gruesome story and it might, you know, trigger or make us feel unsafe in our 21st century ears. But here's what the Lord says about this in Numbers 25, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. And so again, even an emotion like jealousy can be godly. Another really obvious example would be something like fear. In the gospels, Jesus tells us over and over again to fear not. And yet, as we've said in this series many times, one of Proverbs' main messages for us is to fear the Lord. And so again, the emotion of fear, it can either be godly or ungodly, depending on who or what you fear. Now, we could just keep going on and on in here and give different examples where these so-called negative emotions, uh, we see them illustrated and even commanded as a way to be godly. But I think you probably get the point. So if that's true, how do we know what godly emotions look like? Well, again, the only way that you and I can know is by looking at the scriptures, by being led by the Holy Spirit, moment by moment. And so let's go to our next question, and that is this. What are the benefits of godly emotions, and what are the consequences of ungodly ones? Now, when it comes to this question, this is where the book of Proverbs really has a lot to say. This is where it shines. So let me just read off here a list um, of Proverbs which talk about both the benefits and the consequences. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. 
Proverbs 12, 25 says, anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Proverbs 14, 17 says, a quick-tempered person does foolish things, and one who devises evil schemes is hated. Proverbs 14, 29 says, whoever is patient has great understanding, but one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Proverbs 14, 30 says, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. Proverbs 15, 30 says, light in a messenger's eyes brings joy to the heart and good news gives health to the bones. Proverbs 16, 32 says, better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. Proverbs 17, 1 says, better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 17, 22 says, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And then one last one here, Proverbs 25, 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. You see, again, you have to understand here, the Proverbs are very practical. They are meant to be motivating. It's not super nuanced or theological when it comes to the topic of emotions. But again, where it shines and where its strength is, is in communicating the benefits of godly emotions and the consequences of ungodly ones. And the thing that's actually pretty cool is that science even backs this up. For example, we just read in Proverbs 12, 25, that anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. Well, what we see now is that science tells us that anxiety uh, has all kinds of negative impacts on our physical bodies, including increasing our heart rate, chest pain, and even increasing our risk for high blood pressure and heart disease. As well, Proverbs 17:22 said, a cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Well, again, when we look at the scientific community, what we see there is that it tells us that things like joy and laughter, what it does is it releases endorphins in our brains. And according to an article I read from the Mayo Clinic, laughter can positively impact many of our organs. It can act to, uh, activate and relieve your stress response. It can improve your immune system and it can even relieve physical pain. Again, we have to remember that the Proverbs is wisdom literature. And what it's telling us in terms of understanding our emotions is that when you and I cultivate godly emotions and when we avoid or control ungodly ones, there are practical benefits to our lives. And that makes sense, right? Because as I've told you many times in this series, God's word and God's command are for our good. They're there for our protection. And the reason for that is because, again, God created us. He is our creator, our maker, and therefore he knows what is best for us based on how he designed us. And conversely, he knows those things that will bring devastation and harm into our lives. And so he guides us, he leads us, he gives us commands and laws to protect us. And so to close here, let's move to some application. Let's go to the last question. How do we cultivate godly emotion and how do we handle or control ungodly ones? Now this is important because this is where the rubber meets the road. Because as a pastor, a British pastor named Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, he said, I suppose that one of the greatest problems in our, in our life is the right handling of our feelings and emotions. 
Oh, the havoc that is wrought and the tragedy, the misery and the wretchedness that are to be found in the world simply because people do not know how to handle their own feelings. And again, I think if we just turn on the news or just turn on social media, we certainly see that in our day and age. And so how do we do this? Well, I think the first thing that you and I should do in order to, to, to begin to move forward in this is we need to become regularly aware of our emotions. We need to become regularly aware of what we are feeling. Again, for some of you, this is super easy. Like I could just call your name right now and say, hey, what are you feeling? And you would be able to tell me. But for others of you, like me, this is a little bit harder. It requires uh, more work. You see, again, if someone asks me how I'm doing or what am I feeling, I either don't know right away or instead of telling them what I'm feeling, I tell them what I'm thinking, right? And they're like, that, that's not what I asked. And so because of that, it's again, it's harder for me to know what I'm feeling. And so some practical things that I've done and that you could do in order to help you become more aware of your emotion are things like take some time to journal, to just sit before the Lord and ask questions like, Lord, I, I don't know what I'm feeling. Help me. Or maybe go for a walk, a quiet walk, or get into some silence and solitude, or go for a run. And this is particularly helpful if you're more of an internal processor. Um, if you're more of an external processor, you might consider talking with a spouse or a close friend in order to draw you out, in order to help you process what you're feeling. Again, I think one of the most helpful things is just to come before the Lord in prayer and just say, Lord, Holy Spirit, help me to figure out what I'm feeling and why I'm feeling and what it, what it, what's going on there. And so you might have to play, a little, uh, play around with this a little bit to see what exactly works best for you. But this would be the first step. Become aware of your emotions. Now, the next step would be to evaluate your emotions. See, this is where a lot of you stop. You're like, oh, I'm feeling all this, and you just explode it out. Well, don't do that. First, evaluate it. Look at what you are feeling and what it is they are reporting to you about what you believe and about what you value. And then, because uh, again, that's what emotions are for. And then once you identify what they are telling you in terms about what you believe and value, the next step or the next question is to ask yourself, does this belief and does this value line up with what the Bible says I should believe and what I should value? And then if it does, then look, that's a godly emotion and you should cultivate that and you should express it. But if it doesn't, then that emotion should be checked and controlled. You see, this is where we see practically the benefits of all of our faculties working together in the checks and balance system. Again, remember, your emotions report to you what you believe and value. Your mind then can evaluate those beliefs and values. And then based on whether or not they are godly or ungodly, you then use your will to make a choice on how to respond. And I think if it's a godly emotion, express it. But if it's ungodly, then use self-control to check it. I think that this is what Proverbs 3, 5 is getting at when it says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. Now, I know I'm talking about this as if it's like super easy to do, right? You're like, oh, okay, I'll just do all these steps and my life will be great. It's not quite that simple. You see, the most of the time, those ungodly emotions, they sort of just spill out of us before we have time to check them or control them. And that's why I think another step that you and I can take to make some practical changes is that we can, uh, again, make changes to avoid setting ourselves up to fail. 
I mean, that's a lot of what Proverbs is getting at and what it's trying to get us to do in the first place. It's saying, look, you need to know where the dangers lie and then you need to do everything you can to avoid them. Here's how Mahaney and Whitaker put it. They said, we should avoid or eliminate predictable sources of emotional temptation. As the sign says, if in doubt, don't go out. Or as scripture puts it, flee temptation. So if we frequently get impatient with our children when rushing them out the door to school, then maybe we should change our morning routines. If our daily intake of breaking news is tempting us to fear, perhaps we should shut it off. If our social media habits cause us to feel discontent, then maybe we should stop checking our phones. Again, the idea here is to do practical things to not set yourself up to fail, but to pay attention to those things in your life that tempt you into an ungodly emotion, and then again, do all you can to avoid that. The last thing I'll say here before we pray is this, that in order for you and I to live a life that is pleasing to God, we can only do this if we renew our minds with the word and if we depend on and walk by the Holy Spirit. You see, because our emotions are tied to what we believe and what we value, we need to renew our minds in the word. We need to let the word shape us and teach us what to believe and what to value. But not only that, we also have to depend on the spirit so that we can express and exhibit the fruits of the spirit, one of which is self-control. And so in light of that, may God's word shape us and may God's spirit empower us to have redeemed minds, redeemed wills, and redeemed emotions. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of emotions. I know for some of us, maybe they, they feel unimportant or maybe they feel like a curse, but God, we just want to acknowledge that they are a good and right gift from you. And we thank you that because of your son, Jesus, our emotions and our minds and our wills are being redeemed. Thank you, Jesus, that you, in this life, you lived out perfectly, a, a perfectly balanced emotional and intellectual life. Jesus, your emotions were always pleasing. And you listen to them, Lord. There's so many passages that talk about how you would look out and you would be moved with compassion and then you would act in a way that would bless people. God, may we be led by, in our emotions in the way that you were. And so, Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to buy your spirit to uh, both exercise self-control when we need it, but also to uh, exhibit those things of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, and gentleness when we need to express that? And so would you help us, Lord? Would you buy your spirit help us? It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being here this morning. You go ahead and stand. We're going to close with a final blessing. But before we do, if you have anything going on in your life, anything that you would like prayer for, again, I know for some of you this, again, whether it's uh, grief and loss you're experiencing or whatever it is, uh, please work your way down here after the service. We would love, uh, members from our uh, pastoral team and our prayer team would love to have the opportunity to pray for you. Um, to close here though, let me finish with a final blessing. It comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. 
And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen? Amen. Amen. See you next week.